0: And would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we do um, just thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, you have not given it to us sort of in the abstract, but that you have spoken it to us and are speaking it to us now through your scriptures by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that we would not only hear it, but that you would in fact apply it to our hearts. Uh, Lord, we are not adequate for our own hearts but you are the lover of our heart. And so we pray this morning we would experience that love deeply, that you would plant within us and grow within us the gospel of Jesus Christ to the end that the darkened places would be illuminated, Lord, the hardened places would be softened, Lord, the um, cold places would be warmed at the fires of the gospel this morning through the preaching of the word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the next six weeks, uh, we will be looking at these six verses, uh, which I I recognize is a bit of a departure, especially if you're accustomed to and familiar with this church and how we typically preach here. We go through entire books and large sections of Scripture uh, week to week, but we're, we're taking a different approach. And, you know, I just want to sort of Highlight the validity of that approach just by giving you a little example. I mean, I, I love hiking. It's one of the things I love about living in northern New Mexico is the glory of getting out. I'll probably go on a hike today. I love it. Um, getting out, making your way through the woods, you know, seeing how far you can go uh, versus the time you went before or whatever. But I, but I also love sitting. I love, you know, and even better, I love soaking. Uh, just getting in that place and in that posture where rather than you know rushing along, you decide to take it all in, uh, to look around, to listen, to savor uh, what you would otherwise have rushed past that 's what we 're doing uh, over the next few weeks. I was reminded of the great 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon, who described the Word of God as the heart of God made legible. Uh, and the gold of God's love beaten out into leaf gold so that our thoughts might be plated so that we also might have golden good and holy thoughts concerning him. Isn't that beautiful? That's, that's what we're doing. We're taking this little chunk of scripture gold and pounding it out over a number of weeks. And it's no coincidence we're doing this uh, the Sunday after Easter, because in in addition to soaking in this passage, we're really exploring a linkage, an important linkage, between the finished work of Jesus Christ in his death, resurrection, and ascension, and what results from that finished saving work, namely the formation of a people, Uh, namely the creation of his church. In his book, People in Place, Michael Horton uh, describes this linkage beautifully, I think, when he says this, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus generate a remarkable paradox. Right in the place where Jesus, the suffering servant, has been exalted as conquering Lord, the first fruit of creation, the head of the body, he disappears. However, Precisely in that place that is vacated by the one who has ascended, a church emerges. Now, I imagine if we went around this room and played free association with the word church, we would get all kinds of uh, associations. Uh, I imagine it would evoke uh, thoughts of everything from denominations and doctrines to worship styles to maybe woundedness from pastoral care to pettiness and pain, from the sweetness of what the Lord has here to scandal. The subject of the church, let's admit it, can be quite, let's say, complicated. I was thinking this week of what the French president, Charles de Gaulle, said about being president of France. And he said this, he said, you know, it's impossible to rule a country with 246 kinds of cheese. And, you know, I know nothing about being the president of a country, but I know a little something about being the pastor of a church, and it can make managing a country with 246 kinds of cheese seem like child's play, if I'm being honest. It can seem a little impossible at times. I mean, I went to a seminary in which, you know, in the student body, there were over 120 denominations represented, which, you know, you tell people that and they go, oh, wow, that's a lot. Well, in fact, there are an estimated 10,000 denominations in this country alone, not churches, denominations. There are an estimated 45,000 denominations globally, Christian denominations. But even, even setting aside sort of the global metrics, when you just become a part of a particular church body. And I want to say, if it's reasonably healthy, you will will enter into a fellowship of people in which there are are folks of every persuasion and personality and political bent, all kinds of opinions, every experience, life stages, levels of maturity. And not only that, but, but you'll find folks who can't remember a time when their faith wasn't in Jesus right alongside people who are just finding out about Jesus, all under one roof. And there are times it it might even make you scratch your head and wonder how in the world anyone ever thought this thing was a good idea, or how anyone ever imagined there would be any hope in keeping it all together, which is not to say that churches don't employ various techniques to keep it all together. A number of years ago, church growth experts argued that the key to growing the church uh, is uh, adhering to the homogenous unit principle. Which, which is basically to say, you know, sort out and separate out your demographic groupings into homogenous groups, make sure that you're catering to their desires, and don't mix them up because once you mix the groups, they get uncomfortable and that's where the fracturing happens. Adhere to the homogenous unit principle. I used to live in a place that had tons of churches and, and you would often see many of them had two services, not, not so much in the way that we have two services where we're trying to accommodate numbers, but two services, one contemporary and one traditional, which is essentially code for young and old, right? Because Lord knows you can't get those people together and live in harmony. Of course, this doesn't only happen strategically. Sometimes it just happens organically when you're just, you know, you kind of get around some like-minded people in the church. You got your little plurality, you know, of the people who are kind of like you and think like you and vote like you and everything else. And, you know, it's just wonderful to be around people who are like me. And you begin to think, you know, it would make this church really great if it was just people like us. And maybe, you know, maybe we could run off the people who aren't just like us. Others have decided that the way to manage the impossible church is to get back to the days of the early church, to the days when Jesus hadn't been gone too long, when the apostles were still around, when the Holy Spirit was really shaking things up. And and if we don't get back to those good old days, maybe we could just get back to some good old days, like before the internet, you know, like when you had to dress up to go to church, like when, you know, the kids had to say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am to their elders, And maybe, you know, the most common thing is to just give up and just say, I've had it with the church, walking away feeling it's no longer worth the energy or the effort. When I was a college student and I went to college in Atlanta, Georgia, one of my uh, roommates attended a church where the pastor would kind of regularly say, "Uh, if you're looking for the perfect church, you just need to go up the street. And he kind of thought, for the longest time, he thought, well, that's just his colloquial way of saying, this isn't the perfect church, you're not going to find it here, just go up the street if you want to find the perfect church, until one day he took a different way home and drove past a church with a giant neon sign that said, the perfect church. (laughs) So in case you're wondering, it's in Atlanta, Georgia. (laughs) But look, we all know we can't find the perfect church, right? Up the street... We can't find it by implementing, you know, management and growth strategies uh, or trying to create the past. And in fact, you will not even find the, per- the perfect church in the pages of Scripture. Read, read on in Acts, and you won't get very far before you find out this is a church with problems, and you might even say big problems. You've got apostles fighting with each other over core doctrines publicly. There's persecution. The church is filling up with difficult people, with deceptive people, with people who've got designs of their own for what the church ought to be and how it ought to function. You know, there's there's always tough things to work through and pray about, and there's struggles with neighbors, and there's struggles with governmental authorities. You might even begin to think if you read on an Acts, man, things have gotten a lot better. In fact, virtually every letter in the New Testament is prompted by some kind of problem that has come up in the church that requires gospel confrontation. It turns out there is no golden age. Uh, Solomon put it very well in, in Ecclesiastes 7 when he said, don't say. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And with apologies to our beloved Santa Fe, the city of holy faith, there's no holy city. There's just fallen creatures in God's beautiful, broken, yet-to-be-fully-redeemed creation, never arriving, but by God's grace through his church, always relying. Always relying on the saving and sustaining grace of Jesus in our life together as that which keeps this impossible thing not only together, but thriving and beautiful. Now, that's, none of that is to say that God wasn't doing some very unique things in the earliest days of the church. The Bible, in fact, provides us with a metaphor describing what he was doing. The the metaphor is a construction project, and this is essentially the time of the laying of the foundation. Um, And as anyone knows, there's no more critical time, no more dramatic time, maybe no more messy period in a construction project than the foundation laying project time. There's engineers and architects and surveyors and construction guys who have to communicate with each other. Uh, there, There may be earth to move and holes to dig and heavy machinery to bring in. There might even be some explosions that need to be set off in order to build the house. But it's also that really critical period, you have got to get it right or it will be a disaster for the whole house. So we're, we're really looking at these six ver- verses as a kind of a grid through which we can better understand what it means to look to Jesus, to rely on his gospel, to rest in him as author and perfecter and founder and foundation of our faith as the church, as the one who keeps it together, who is its life. And we're going to do that with, three th- with, with an eye on three things about the church, its formation, its foundation, and finally, its fruit. Now... If the book of Acts were optioned as a Hollywood movie, I'm convinced that the passage just before this would, you know, they'd mess with it and they'd put it at the end. You know, where the Holy Spirit's poured out and the Apostle Peter preaches this banger sermon and 3,000 people come to know the Lord. You know, that would come at the end of the movie, right? Because that's the Hollywood ending. I mean, I can, I can assure you when I was a church planter and, and I would go and make my um, my... Quarterly reports to a grim panel of presbyters. They're actually not grim. They're really encouraging. Um, Reporting on my progress to this committee at Presbytery, I'd have loved nothing more than to report that as a result of my preaching, Holy Ghost revival had broken out in Kerrville, Texas. And since my last report, you know, the church has gone from 50 to 3,050 and I would drop the mic, and I would walk out. But but in the scriptural script, the biblical script, not the Hollywood, Hollywood one, all of that actually represents a beginning, not, not an end. Those are the first steps, not the fulfillment. They are the appetizer, not the main course, because that's just the prelude to the really good stuff to come, to the house the Lord is building. The, the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost is just the beginning of the Of of what God does with the gospel, the formation of one new people. So that even before anyone knows what to call this one new people, uh, they finally land on Christians in chapter 11. The very first thing that happens is the formation of fellowship, people together with each other, not in isolation, not on their personal faith journey, but in the church. As a church, this is Babel in reverse, right? It's so that instead of of God say, or, or of people saying, you know what, let's climb our way up to heaven, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit comes down from heaven. Instead of being scattered all over the place into their, into their homogenous unit principles, into their little different groups and languages, the whole world is gathered together, given a common tongue into one new kingdom people. I think I've quoted this before, but it's worth repeating Eugene Peterson from his book Reverse Thunder, where he says this, one of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, our instead of my, us instead of me. The finished applied work of Jesus is church fellowship forming. And and that is not to say there aren't all kinds of wonderful resources out there and benefits. We should be thankful to the Lord that he has given us such a treasury of of beneficial things as Christians, from parachurch ministries to conferences to Bible studies to streaming services, Christian associations and seminars and summer camps. You know, just to say nothing of the good it'll do your soul to just go on a hike or hang on the beach with Jesus. But essential to knowing the grace of Jesus and growing in the grace of Jesus is integration into his body, his bride, his church. The scriptures just don't have a category for a Christian disconnected from the church any more than any of us have a category for a fish disconnected from water. Now, everyone's heard that among the native peoples of the northern hemispheres, there are dozens, you know, they have dozens and dozens of terms for snow. You know, and why is that? Because snow is just kind of their life. It's, they're just in it. It's essential to life. It's endemic to life. They're never not in it. It's always there. They build their houses out of it. It, it shapes how they dress, what they eat, what they do. Everything about their life and culture. And, and you know, in a, in a similar way, the scripture has dozens and dozen terms for the church, for the same reasons because you know it is understood that for the christian it is essential to life endemic to life there's no sense in which a christian is can can live in any kind of way disconnected from the church so this, the scriptures are replete with metaphors for the church what, the church is called my people the sons of the living God, my loved one, the body of Christ, God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building, God's temple, God's household, the new Jerusalem, the Israel of God, the bride of Christ, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, the holy city. And I'm not even doing all of them. And for all the variety of those metaphors, every one of them, each of them has something in common. Uh, each of them communicates something absolutely essential about us and about the church, and that is that the church is that body that exists in radical reliance on Jesus Christ for our life and well-being. He's the vine where the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing, right? Each of these metaphors, in other words, is a metaphor of contingency and deep dependency. You can't understand them any other way because we don't have a category for what it means to be a son without a father or a loved one without a lover, or a worker without a boss, or a field without a farmer, or a household without a head of household, or an army without a general, or a building without an architect, or a building without a foundation, or a temple without a priest, or a temple without a sacrifice, a body without a head, a bride without a husband, right? Each of them express that relationship which is essential to the Christian. So, you know, if you were to ask Jesus, how, how are people going to come to know you? How will it be possible to reach all kinds of people from all around the world with this gospel message? And he, he would direct you to the church. He would say the church, as he said in, in Matthew 5, the church is the light of the whole world. It's a city on a hill. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In fact, John goes on to write in his first letter that love for the brothers—okay, this is this is an expression of what it means to be living together as a church, uh, in in fellowship with one another in the Lord, having a living and active relationship in that way. Love for the brothers serves as testimony that one has passed from death to life. It's a testimony. All of this is talking about the church, the living expression of the power of the gospel among God's people. And that's why it's always the case that where the spirit's at work and the gospel is thriving, people formation happens and churches pop up. It's why I've never, in in all the places I've been a minister, I've never seen church plants as anything threatening. I, I see them quite the opposite. I see it as encouraging. I take it as great encouragement that the Spirit's at work, that God loves his people in this place so much, that he's growing his kingdom here by, by doing what he's done from the beginning, that, by, by forming fellowship, by establishing churches, causing them to spring up. Something, it's a wonderful thing. You know, even if we filled every pew in Santa Fe and every church, we would still only probably be accommodating 20% of the population. There's a lot more to do. And here's the thing, the same gospel that forms the church is at the same time the foundation upon which the church stands. Um, I alluded to this earlier, there's nothing more critical uh, than than foundations, right? Um, I know there's some realtors among us, and let me ask you, I mean, when, when you're going through that home buying process and you enter the inspection phase of the home purchase, what happens when you hear that there are foundation issues? It, it would be way better, wouldn't it, to have almost any other issue than the foundation issue. It'd be way better to have roof problems, way better to have plumbing or electrical problems, anything but the foundation. Because you can have the most awesome, you know, shiplapped, lapped, suite, master bedroomed, granite countertopped, sweeping vistas of the sangres from your man cave balcony, house in the world, but none of it matters if you don't have a good foundation. That can all just land in a heap. The old hymn put it so well, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. His gospel is revealed in the scriptures, is the foundation upon which the church stands or falls. He, he must, that gospel must support and bear the weight of the whole thing or, or everything falls apart. And now, to be, to be clear, that's not to say that it's not possible to keep something going. It's not even to say it's not possible to keep things going and feel really good about how they're going. Uh, you, you can be a part of an enterprise in which there's all kinds of activities with programs and budget and staff and facilities and social outreach, all you know, without having a solid gospel foundation. It's possible, you know, I know I've talked to some of you, and some of you have experienced that in church life, with the sense that a lot's going on, but but it's not alive. You know, and even if that isn't your experience, the scriptures actually attest to this the possibility of it. There's a letter to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3 that's very sharp on this point. And keep in mind, these letters in Revelation aren't letters from pastors to other pastors or church members to pastors. They're letters from God to the church. Uh, And here's what the Lord says in that letter to this church. Brace yourselves, okay? I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. That's, that's wild, isn't it? There's a, there's a way of functioning in which reputation doesn't really square with reality. right? There's famous sort of corporate case studies, right, where like, Corporations are so excited about what they're doing, and they're, they're, you know, a culture of sort of self-talk, of, you know, breaking your arm while you're patting yourself on the back, all the while completely disconnecting from your customer base, right? It's it's a reputation that doesn't square with reality. There, there, There can be a reputation amongst church members and in a community in which it resides, in which there's a sense that things are really thriving and it's successful, but the reality is, at least in Sardis, you know, grimly, death. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Right? This is in keeping with, you know, what Jesus said about the religious leaders of his time, right? Like, you look great. You're like a whitewashed tomb. Shiny on the outside, dead on the inside. One of my mentors, I mentioned this to you, you know, the, the, when he asked me, what's the worst thing that can happen to you as a pastor? And we just, I kind of went down the list of every scandalous thing I could think of. And he kept shaking his head and he finally said, no. the Worst thing that can happen to you as a pastor is to have an appearance of godliness while denying its power. That's worse than adultery, thieving, whatever. Whatever you can think of. That's the worst. But the scriptures don't just give a grim diagnosis. They deliver a cure. And it's here in Revelation 3 to to wake up. Strengthen what remains. Dylan was right. You've got some big dreams, baby, but in order to dream, you've got to be asleep. Wake up! Churches wake up with the gospel when they know that health isn't taking hold of what is described here as what's been received and what's been heard. What is that? That's the gospel. You've received it. You've heard it principally, you know, through, through the, the, the transmission of the good news of Jesus by the way of the scriptures, through preaching and teaching in the ministry of the church, to the end that we would be strengthened by it. What, the, the image here is something like eating a good meal. It's fortifying, nourishing. Uh, That's what we're doing here every week. God's got good things on offer. Come and eat. It's core to to our evangelism, right? I'm I'm getting some good stuff. I'm being fed. It's delicious. It's growing me. I'd love for you to taste it. So that people are growing by it, being fortified by it, nourished by it to the end that we'd keep it, that we'd keep on eating and being fed. And, and part of it, too, is being humbled by the gospel. There's a recognition here uh, that, while we, that, that we will regularly fail. We'll fall short of our greatest aspirations. So he says, you know, also you need to have kind of a lifestyle of repentance, you know, um, which only deepens your reliance on Jesus. So the gospel is now, isn't treated as like ho-hum stuff. It's held near and dear as our greatest treasure, um, so that we look to it, we lean on it, so that it is the singular metric by which we're evaluating our lives and evaluating, and are, are evaluated by, by others. Are, are they clinging to the gospel of Jesus as their life, as their foundation, as the as a support structure of everything? Never sleeping, never dreaming that the, we, we can get onto something better. So churches formed by the gospel rely on the gospel as their foundation, and what results is fruit, fruit of the gospel. Beautiful, delicious, nutritious things grow from the gospel. And this passage identifies fruits that grew from the gospel in this young church, fruits that remain at the heart of the mission of the church for all time um, and at the heart and the mission of the vision of this particular church. Um, This is what's going to kind of form our series from here on out. The fruits are this. A church devoted to the scriptures, what's called here the, the apostles' teaching. A church devoted to community what's called here the fellowship, a church devoted to worship, what's called here the breaking of the bread. And finally, what can only be described, I think, is a church devoted to dependence, a church that prays, a church that always knows it's depending on the Lord. John Stott sums all this up as a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, and a praying church. These are the things to which the church is devoted. It's reflective of their love for God, for each other, all undergirded by daily growth. And, and, and undergirding all of it is this one little word at the beginning of our passage, um, and that word is devotion. And I got you know, to thinking about devotion this week. I mean, devotion's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's not a doctrine. It's not even really um, an action. It's, it's more of a quality um, that resides in the, in the heart, at the center of a person. It's, it, it's one connected to the fact that the church was formed, founded, and went forward with the gospel, but, but also to how all of that happened. Devotion kind of gives this idea of steadfastly continuing in something, persisting in something, passion for something. It is the very opposite of being fickle or quick to flee or easily offended or swiping left when you get bored To to put a finer point on it, you see devotion really shine in the presence of challenges and difficulties and ambiguities, right? There's a persistence to it, a stubborn quality to it, enabling people to handle the times and the occasions and the contingencies where you otherwise just want to bail. But you don't because you're devoted. It means that when the inevitable troubles come, when church life ceases to be pleasing or when it, puts, when it presses you, rather than fighting or fleeing, you, you, you find a footing in devotion. And, and it needs to be said, there, there certainly are situations when life in the church, you know, becomes, you know, the church becomes church in name only. And I, I talked about that a minute ago with the church in Sardis you know, where a church has strayed so far from existing for Christ and his glory that it, it almost becomes a matter of obedience to leave. But I want to say even then, you know, that comes not, you know, that comes after some persistence. Of hanging in there, a good amount of that, you know, and, and not, not leaving willy-nilly. Doing all you can to keep relationships intact, to appeal you know, to what the scriptures teach as it relates to church, so that if you have to go, you go with a heavy heart and tears in your eyes. All of that now is descriptive of the practice of devotion, but I haven't said anything yet about its power. What's the power of devotion? Well, it seems to me that a person of devotion is essentially a lover. You're a lover. You're one whose heart has been captivated. Um, I don't think it's overstating to say everyone's heart's been captivated. <laughs> people, people leave churches because they're more devoted to the thing that they're wanting to get to than the thing that they're in, right? It's driven by devotion. Devotion causes people to stick it out. Devotion causes people to say sayonara. Because we are driven by our greatest loves, we're reoriented by those loves because the heart has been captivated, uh, devoted, and that drives our behavior and our habits and our thinking and everything. You know, the best analogy I have for this is uh, in falling in love with the woman who is now my wife. Um, we met in college and, uh, and you know, I, I just think about kind of that time in my life and there were just time, you know, just, it, it changed everything for me. There were times where it was like, I was on this side of campus and she was over here and I had a class in 10 minutes, but I could go over here and see her for three minutes and then maybe make it back to the class on time, right? I wouldn't do that if I wasn't devoted. Um, my schedule orbited more and more around what she was up to than what I was up to. She certainly occupied my thoughts in my daydreams. There was a period and we, you, can take me out, you can buy me lunch and I will tell you our story. But yeah, there was a period where I was getting the Heisman from the woman who's now my wife fairly aggressively. And you know, I mean, there were people coming around including her roommates saying, this is getting sad, give up. I couldn't because I was devoted. Everything else took a back seat because of that devotion. And devotion comes with expectations, of course. You become exclusive in your love. You don't have other loves because the one you love makes you devoted. It's why if any of us married people around here began spending time with another man or woman, not our spouse, people would be rightly very concerned <laughs> they would be rightly very confused, at least. And here's the thing. This love, this devotion that's described here in Acts 2 is not something that they wrung out of their own lives. It is, in fact, that which was wrought in them. And it is that which is wrought in us by the love of Jesus for us. The devoted church is the church that never gets over how greatly it has been and as being loved by Jesus. Never gets over that. Never moves on. The British have a great word, gobsmacked. They're gobsmacked by it. You can't believe it sometimes, how much he loves you. We aren't devoted because we pursued Jesus, but because he's pursued us. We love because he loved us first. Devotion grows out of the heart that's been captivated by the love of Christ. And the question is, and it's just a good thing to put to ourselves, are we captivated by that? Does it shape our relationship with this church and this community? Is it reorienting our lives and our loves? Is it reordering as our our priorities? Will it be said of us at the end of our days that our greatest love, our greatest passion and priority in this life, you know, was not golf, or travel, or even, you know, family. I mean, these are all good things, but, but, but would it be said of us that this was a person who loved what Jesus loved most? The church. That he gave his life for, that he's coming back for, that, he's, that, he, that he calls his bride our hearts were made for devotion. We can't help but give them away, often with the hopes that we'll get love and life in return. But there's only one kind of love. There's only one form of devotion that springs not from us trying to get life for ourselves or life out of something else, but it, but, but it is the love of Jesus which secures it for us, which captivates us, which loved us first, not asking anything in return by grace. We're, we're about to come to this table and, and you know, as you prepare to come, maybe, maybe think about your devotional life. And I'm not talking about 30 minutes in the morning where you crack open your Bible. I'm talking about your life. I'm going to think about this. Where has it taken me? What tables have I been queuing up to? You know, week, uh, this week, or maybe my whole life, where I'm going there with the hope of getting something out of it for me. The hope of getting love. You know, maybe it's relational fulfillment, or monetary security, or career success, or family harmony. As you think about that, consider this, that this is the one table that doesn't demand of us, but for those who place their faith in Christ, delivers for us. Because all the demands have been met. Our devoted Savior has loved our souls. This table's been set by him that we would come and experience his deep, deep love, as the, as the hymn puts it, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. And it's not bad to remember that we're fickle and we're frail and we're failed, but he is faithful. He is devoted to his church and is with us to the very end of the age. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, you have uh, been gracious to reveal your holy will to us in your word, but there there are things that remain somewhat mysterious. And I suspect one of them is your love for us. Um, your deep, eternal love uh, for us. Uh, your costly love for us. Your persistent, shepherding, tender-hearted love for us. A love for us, Lord, that is drained of any anger toward us, of any wrath, because the wrath has been satisfied. None of it is left for us because of your devoted love, which you took the full measure of God's wrath towards sin for us. Lord, would you uh, enable us to wake up to these truths, Lord, that we would know that we have a Savior unique among the gods of all the world, who loves us, who doesn't say, give me, and then I'll love you. Perform for me, and then I'll love you. Uh, Straighten up and fly right, and then I'll love you. Perform these various rituals correctly, persistently, faithfully forever, and and then I will love you. No, you've loved us by grace. So that's where our faith is. That's where our trust is. Lord, we turn from all other trusts and turn to you. Attend to us as we come to this table. Uh, Lord, that we would remember that, that this is good food for the faithful um, because you were faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.